So with that, today we are in the book of Proverbs, chapter 30, and we are going to study the first four verses. So if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. <laughs> the inerrant word of God reads, The words of Agur, son of Jake, the oracle. The man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. For indeed your word is true. For indeed your word is infallible. Lord, I pray that me, Lord, a sinful man who is unworthy of your treasures, of your goodness, may receive mercy as I expound and preach from your word today. Show me mercy, Lord, I pray. Yes. Heavenly Father, as we uh, learn from the proper place of humanity, which should be that of a humble heart, knowing our place, so that we can see you in the light that you bring to our lives. May that be granted to us this morning as we realize that any other way will cause us, will make us feel worn out, dumb, exhausted. Bring these truths to us according to the mercy of your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may Amen. be seated. So the sermon for today, based on the passage which is read, I've named it the self-aware weary man. The self-aware weary man. And I think a proper subtitle would be Acknowledging Our Human Brokenness and Seeing God's Glory. It is not possible to see the greatness of God unless we realize that we have no greatness out of our own worldly wisdom and strength, we have no greatness of our own. And this is why the Bible has this theme all throughout that tells us that true self-awareness is only found when we realize our place and our identity as compared to our Creator. Yet, in our day, what do we see? It seems that we are conditioned to think highly of ourselves as a default position. Self-awareness in the context of our culture is often linked with self-help, knowing your potential, how to win friends and influence people, right? Making a habit out of thinking positively so that you can somehow influence that into being, right? That is paganistic thinking. Now, there's nothing wrong with being disciplined, having goals, and being diligent with our talents, with our 
work so that we can be accomplished people. As a matter of fact, we should do that with excellence. But is that where our identity should be? Is that where our daily grind chase, if you will, should be so that we are consumed by it? Scripture tells us no. Only when we know who he is can we then know our place. Namely, that there is a God and you are not him. So today we will look at the words of Agur, who in this short passage has a revelation that comes to him when he compares himself to the ultimate standard, not to his neighbor, not to the the addict that he sees, or not to the co-worker that is cheating in the workplace. No. When he compares himself to the ultimate standard, he basically realizes, wow, I am, I am a scumbag. I am nothing. And Agur realizes only then the greatness of God and that there is none like God. So to study this portion of scripture this morning, we're going to divide it into three areas. First, we're going to see the insignificance of men. That is true self-awareness. Secondly, we're going to see the greatness of God. That is a proper, the proper perspective that we should have. And then third, we're going to see that there's a difference between knowing about God versus knowing God. So let us do just that. First, point number one, the insignificance of mankind in order for us to have true self-awareness. Let us explore a little bit, first of all, about the author, Agur. The first portion of verse one here says, the words of Agur, son of Jake or Jaquet, the oracle. As we have dealt in the book of Proverbs, in the past, right, this is not the first summer that we do this. We have enjoyed and learned wisdom from expounding from the wisdom of Proverbs. We are told that most of these Proverbs are from Solomon. Today, however, we come to exception that we are told are not the words of Solomon, but of Agur. So who is Agur? Who's this author that is speaking to us? We are told he is the, the son of Jaqeh or Jake. But other than that, what else do we know about this Bible character? The answer? Nothing. We have no clue. That's all we're told. This is the only place in the Bible where we see Agur being mentioned. Although some scholars have conjectured that perhaps Agur could be pseudonym or a nickname for Solomon, as Solomon is accommodating or accumulating wisdom, that it could be a nickname for Solomon, but the evidence is definitely not there. It's just a conjecture. What we do know, though, is that we are told by God himself that holy men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit, and they were inspired by the living God in order to put down in writing the very words of the Mighty One. So then we know 
that even though Agur is mentioned nowhere else in scripture, we know that this was a man moved by the Spirit of God that God used to give us this instruction, these words. Now the oracle, as it says, this is Agur, the son of Jekai, and it says, this is the oracle. It could be interpreted as thinking of a burden, an oracle or a message, but also a burden or even a punishment, depending on the context sometimes. This is something that is is going to be told, and this is heavy. This, this is some serious stuff, as we will see here. We see the author's condition, right? And then that's where we start to see the heaviness of, of these words that are being revealed. What can be so heavy of a burden for this author, Agur? Well, the second part of verse 1 says, The man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. See, Agur doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't come and has this flowery language in order to, you know, sometimes in our sinful mind, we may think like, well, I'm going to I'm gonna ask God for something, but like, I need to like butter him up first, right? I need to set the stage. You know, he, he goes straight to it. He says, I am done. I am exhausted. I am tired. The word there, burnt out, it literally means consumed. Like a candle that has burned out. And it's done. There's nothing left. Agur says, that's me. Can anyone relate? Do you feel exhausted and absolutely consumed? Have you been trying, trying, doing things, trying to make them better? Trying to get your life straight with your daily duties in the home, at the workplace, in your school? And what seem maybe like a set of doable tasks, whether it is physically, mentally, even spiritually, have only piled up to have you now be discouraged. To have you feeling like you are weary, you are burnt out, you are exhausted, you are consumed, and you are done. Do any of us feel that way today? The truth is, many of us do. If you see me up here preaching and think that I may have it all together, I don't. And many times the issue is that we come to God asking Him for help instead of asking Him for mercy. You see that? It's like, Lord, like, please allow me to get out of this. That way I can put you on pause, put you on hold, and then go and do whatever the heck I was doing. Please help me. Let us remember the blind beggar Bartimaeus. When he was told that Jesus was passing by in the crowd, what, is, what did Bartimaeus say? Did he say, Lord, I need a little bit of help. I'm a victim of circumstance. I'm blind. I'm broke. Like, please help me out. Throw me a bone. Maybe 
Bartimaeus was in the year 2021, maybe that would have been his cry, right? However, Bartimaeus, being moved by the Holy Spirit, that's not what he said. Someone who may have been looked upon as, you know, he's a victim, he, he needs help. Bartimaeus says, no. Bartimaeus says, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. So then as Bartimaeus knew his place, in not asking for help, but rather asking for mercy. Lord, give me what I don't deserve. Give me mercy. In such fashion, the words of Agur will also lead us to understand that in his weariness, in his exhaustion, he doesn't need help. He needs mercy. And as such, we now begin to understand the condition of Agur. We've seen his condition absolutely humbled and humiliated by his lack of knowledge and wisdom. Which leads to the main realization of this heavy message of this oracle. Verses 2 and 3 says, Surely, I am too stupid to be a man. I have told my kids not to use that word. It's not nice to use that word. Right. Now, I've often also shared that when Scripture is sharing something that is so heavy, God's Word does use very heavy language to depict the true condition of that that is evil, dirty, filth. And scripture does use words that we would consider curse words if interpreted accurately in our modern language. I believe this is one of those cases where the author is saying, like, this is how low I am, even to be a man. It goes on, he says, I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Now, typically, in wisdom literature of Scripture, the author encourages readers to heed what they're saying, what they're going to say, because they are wise, right? At the beginning of Proverbs, chapter 1, specifically in verses 8 and 9, that is exactly what Solomon is doing. Right? Take a close look to what I'm going to say, because this is wisdom. But curiously and shockingly enough, here... Agurs begins by turning that in his head and says, I got nothing. I got nothing. Rather, he says, the word there is like, I'm brutish. I'm like a beast. I'm not even to the level of a man. I'm subpar, subpar human. This is harsh, dramatic language that he uses here with the purpose of showing the limitations of human wisdom when it comes to to comparing human wisdom to the majesty, to the glory of God, as we will now see. There is a sense then in which someone, right, this is a warning for us, someone can have fake humility 
and declare similar words just to appear humble and pious. But that's not the, that's not the case here. In this context in which Agur is writing, the sentiment of brokenness, of genuine need in his soul comes through. He realizes, I know nothing. I am not wise. I do not truly know God. And the way this is expressed poetically here, this is a cry, not, not only a declaration, but it's a plea. It's a cry of desperation. Similar to Bartimaeus, Lord, have mercy on me. I don't need help. I need mercy. A plea for God to reveal himself. Let us take a look at what Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in, his, boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So Agur has spoken very vividly of his condition, of what he has realized, of what state he's in. And in that, he has revealed to us his true self-awareness, leaving him in a state of humility. True self-awareness. My friends, do you have true self-awareness today? Do you think of yourself as perhaps needing a little bit of help, but, you know, you'll take it from there? Or are you at a spot like a gourd where you're like, you know what? I've tried my wisdom. I came out empty-handed and maybe even worse. I came out as a debtor. It is with such a humility of heart that we can then see the greatness of God. And this is what we're going to see now as we take a look at the next verse. So then this is the second point. The greatness of God. This is a proper perspective that we should have. Proverbs 30, verse 4. It says, Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? We'll stop there. So here's a set of questions indicating that there is one who is creator and has control over his creation. The creator of the heavens and the earth. This literary method used here it uses rhetorical questions in order to prove a point. And the point is this. What God does, man can't do. Or, what man can never do, God has done. Now, humility, to understand that, like, I'm not God, only He can do those things. 
Humility is required. However, humility does not come naturally to us. Just as when Job felt that he could question and challenge God, for in his mind, God was being unfair. What did God respond to Job? It was with a similar literary method by the author, right? A series of rhetorical questions that showed Job the purposes and the ways of God which were higher beyond the comprehension of Job. And Job was left humbled when God asked him, right, where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? Where were you? And that left Job with the realization of there is a God, I am not him. So this, let's take a, a quick look here at, at two of the questions that are asked. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? a direct reference to other passages in scripture going back to Jacob's ladder the book of Genesis in which Jesus also makes made a reference to John 3 verse 13 it says Jesus speaking no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven the son of man see that there's so many wisdom nuggets, so so much of a treasure of what we can learn from God. If we could see and hear the words of Jesus as the Jewish people did. When the learned people of Israel would hear Jesus say such things as, No one has ascended into heaven except who has ascended from heaven, the Son of Man. Basically, Jesus is saying, Jacob's ladder, when Jacob declared that God spoke to him, Jesus is saying, that was me. You understand then, as we see those statements of Jesus, why Jesus was not killed for what he did, but because of what he said. This is why they accused Jesus of blasphemy. He told him, who are you? Being a mere man, make yourself equal with God. And they tried to stone him. The penalty for blasphemy was, you'll be stoned to death. How, how dare you even attempt to come to the level of God? So as Agur is asking that question, who has done that? Jesus answered it. He says, I have. See that? And then the other question, who has gathered the wind in his fist? Obviously, this is a rhetorical question, right? Can that even be done? Can, right? Literally, can that? No. But again, the literary form, what is being portrayed here is who can control, who can manage the impossible, specifically the creation? Who can do that? It's impossible to men, but this speaks to the power of God to control his physical creation, to have dominion over his creation. Who has this power over nature then? Remember when Jesus was in the boat with his disciples 
And there we see the humanity of Christ and the divinity of Christ. We are told that Jesus was exhausted. He was sleeping. And as they were hit by a storm, the disciples got so worried, they literally thought, that's it, we're going to die. We're going to die. And Jesus is over there taking a nap. So they go and wake him up. Like, Lord, like, don't you care that we're perishing? And what happened next is very, very revealing. Jesus woke up and he did a double rebuke. First, he rebuked the disciples for their lack of faith. And then, he rebuked the storm. And what was the reaction of the disciples? We have that here recorded in Mark 4, verse 41. It says, after Jesus had calmed the storm, it says this, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, we've gone through the book of Mark at Acts Reformed Church a couple of years back. And when we did an in-depth study of the book of Mark, we studied this passage. Let us recall what was happening. As the disciples were literally fearing for their life, thinking that was going to be it, they were going to die. It says that they were very, very afraid. However, once Jesus calmed the storm, it says that their fear actually increased. They were more afraid after Jesus caused a storm. Why? It says they were filled with great fear. Because they had been given the proof of who was with them in the boat. They're in the presence of the Almighty. And that was too much for them to bear. Who is this? That even the wind and storm obey him. So then in that question too, that Agor asks, who can do that? Who has power over creation? Jesus has declared, I do. See that? So now back to reflecting on the words of Agor then. Agor is telling us, man is not God. And whenever man attempts to take the role of God, it would lead to being worried. It would lead to being worn out, exhausted. You're done. You can try, but we'll end up just like a gore. So that's pretty bad news, right? Try all you want. You're going to come to nothing. As a matter of fact, you're going to end up worse. Fortunately, it doesn't end there. It does not end there. Because when Agur is now in the realization of who he is, his mind and his heart are now ready to know who God is. It takes us to the, to the third point. Knowing God versus knowing about God. So the last part of verse 4 there, it says, What is his name? And what's his son's name? Surely you know. So the rhetorical questions that Agor asked, 
He's saying, who can do that? What's his name? And what is his son's name? You could do a whole sermon series just on that. But we'll summarize it as such. So that could be interpreted in two ways. First, Agur, through being inspired by the Holy Spirit, in a way is a challenge to men who think that they can do great things, that they can compare themselves to God. And Agur is saying, is there someone who can answer yes to these things? Is there? In the arrogance of humankind, can you do what God can do? Agur is inviting volunteers. Who raise their hand? Who can do this? Can you? Yes? Okay, raise your hand. Who is it? And if you say you do, we don't know you. So who's your son? Do you have a son? Maybe your son knows. This is a challenge, right? Scripture tells us that God looks at the foolishness of man and he laughs. On the other hand, the other interpretation for this when it hits home is the one who can do this is only Yahweh. Only God Almighty. And Agur is saying, do you know him? Do you know the one who can do all these things? And do you know his son's name? So that's when he hits home, right? His son's name. Surely you know. So then this points to the fact that we have been given revelation. God has given us natural revelation and God has given us special revelation. Both natural revelation in creation and special revelation in scripture are given, but God must also grant us the understanding of that revelation. Because it's available to everyone. But God is the one that must grant the understanding. Nevertheless, it doesn't excuse those who don't understand. How can we understand the fact that God is in a holy place and we are not? I found a great quote as I was studying this week by great theologian, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think I have it here, yeah. Referring to Job, he says, Oh, that I knew where to find him. That is the question. I look at history, I look at providence, I look to myself, I look everywhere, and yet I cannot find him. Where can I find him? There's only one solution. I must wait upon God, and God must tell me about himself. That is revelation. And it is the function of the Holy Spirit to give us this revelation. We, we all have revelation. God's, God's revealed to us. But we must be granted that understanding. Because otherwise, our only response will be to reject God. Let us take a look at a passage here in Romans that will speak just to that. <clears throat> Romans 1, beginning in verse 18 through 23, it says, For the wrath of God 
is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteous, unrighteousness suppress the truth of God. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. So God has given revelation. Both natural in the things we see and special. He has told us who he is. Yet, what is the default position of mankind? No. Rejection. The verse there says that we suppress the truth of God. There's no such thing as a true atheist. The only reason an atheist is militantly against God is because they have been made in the image of God and in their rebelliousness, they push against that knowledge of God. They suppress the truth. So then what shall we say then? As we suppress the truth of God, we are without excuse. In our human pride, we are without excuse before a holy God. I will cite another quote that I found in a on an Instagram page that I follow. It's called Monergism. And they quoted this as anonymous, so I'll I'll just put it here and I'll read it for you. It says, There is scarcely anything more offensive to human pride than the idea that we need saving. The truth of our spiritually bankrupt condition is too hard to bear. We prefer to think of ourselves as having sufficient wisdom and righteousness of our own. Is this not true? It is an offense for us to think that we need saving, that we need mercy, that we need grace, that we need a savior. That's an offense to us. In our human default condition, men reject God claiming to be wise, right? That's what it says. It says that in their futile and foolish thinking, they have exchanged the creation for the creator. Idols, right? Whether that's self, safety, reputation, etc. Interestingly enough, what follows in that passage of Romans, Romans 1, if you keep reading, <clears throat> it says that because people suppress his truth and reject his revelation, it says that God has given them over to a reprobate mind. Basically, you want to have at it? Have at it. Follow the the impulses of your wicked hearts. And what God describes there that people will do when left to the reprobate mind is all sorts of sexual deviancy, not only fornication, but specifically the perversion of male and female sexuality. Does that sound familiar? 
So then that is what God condemns. It's exactly what we find that this very day is being promoted from the highest levels of academia, media, politicians, corporate America, and yes, even in churches. The very thing that God is condemning in Romans chapter 1, when people are given over to a reprobate mind. Then the key here becomes, how can we become wise unto God? The realization of who we are, we, we have nothing, we are nothing, we're going to become exhausted if we try to do it ourselves and gain wisdom. God tells us, if you want to be wise, you need to become a fool to the world. So then the caution for us is, if the world is telling you, and by that I mean if media, if pop culture, if the elite are telling you that you are in their team, that you agree with them, they are welcome you in their camp, that means that your ideology matches their ideology, their worldview. At the very best, you have a foot in the world and a foot in the church. And at worst, you're not even in church. What does scripture say about this? Why is it important for the Christian to be a fool to the world? Let us look at a couple of verses here. 1 Corinthians 1.18. It says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Right? Paul, arguably the brightest mind, scholarly mind of his generation. The Pharisee of Pharisees. And yet, the wise of his time did not value what Paul had to say. Paul was called a fool. He was called a babbler. Let's look at Acts 17, 18. <clears throat> it says, Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. One more, Acts 5, 41. Speaking of the disciples, when they were being persecuted, it says, Then they, the disciples, left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That is the name of Christ. My friends, when the resurrected Jesus is more important to us than the things that are most important to the smart people of our day, we will be called fools. Realize that. Now, this is hard. This is hard for me. Being in school and, and exhausting my mental and physical abilities to, to go to a higher education, God is telling me, no, you need to be thought of as a fool if you want to serve me. You see that? That is not natural to me. It's hard for us Christians to think of us 
that we must become fools to the way that the world thinks. It is counter to our ego because we want to be accepted. We want to be thought of as, like, I belong. I think like the people who are smart. As we just saw in a, in a couple of sample passages, the disciples said that they were rejoicing because they were thought of as fools. They were dishonored because they were preaching Jesus and the resurrection. See that? The approval of God then will necessarily mean the disapproval and the labeling of as fools from the world. The apostles rejoiced in that fact. So then to become wise like a gore, we must become fools according to human standards, right? Doesn't mean that, that we're dumb. We're fools. We're thinking fools. We are wise fools. We are looking to what God has to say about the issues of our day, which will be foolishness to the world. And then we see that Agur could know about God, but yet could be in danger of not knowing God. Know about God, but not knowing God. It is the same with us today. We can know the power of God. We can witness the power of God, how he's been with us in the past, how he's just divinely intervened in the lives of our families, our loved ones. But yet, there could be a danger that we still don't know God in a saving sense. Luke 6, 46, what did Jesus says? Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Obedience, right? We cannot call Jesus Lord and yet live like the world tells us to live. And then James 2, 19, it says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe. And they shudder. They tremble. So mental acknowledgement itself, awareness that there is a God, oh, I'm not denying God, it's not enough. You must know God and you must be known by God. Agur is telling us the path to that is true self-awareness. You're nothing. If you're going to try to do things your way, you're going to be exhausted, and you're going to realize that you're going to be, you're going to come out empty-handed. Therefore, we have to become fools according to the world, in order that our mind and our heart can then be filled with true wisdom, with true knowledge of who God is, and of our dependence upon him. So then how can we wrap this up here? Our Lord began his declaration by saying, I am weary. Lord, I am tired. I'm exhausted. I'm done. I have nothing. Are you weary today? Not only weary, but are you burned out? 
Today, my friends, know that there is hope for you. Let us be reminded of the words of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, looking to Jesus. That rhetorical question, the, the rhetorical set of questions that Agor asked that no one can do. Jesus has answered to each of those questions. I can do them. Manifesting his power. And that same Jesus is telling you, you're exhausted, you're burned out. You realize that you can't do it. Jesus says, come to me. I will give you rest. And then have you realized there is a great God who knows what it is to be tired, to be weary, to be exhausted. Not because he's weak, but because Jesus entered creation. He humbled himself and he experienced the limitations of humanity, of flesh. Remember, we were told that Jesus was tired, that Jesus was thirsty that Jesus needed to eat. So we are we are then made aware that Jesus in his humanity has experienced what it is to suffer exhaustion, to suffer pain, and ultimately to suffer a torturous death. Jesus knows. And therefore, he is not a God who cannot relate to you. He knows. If you are suffering today, Jesus knows what you're going through because he himself has suffered in the flesh. And then lastly, let us take away from here that true self-awareness in the eyes of God is admitting I am broken. I am in need. I need God's mercy. And I am not alone. See, It could be seen as a bad news first, right? But those bad news turn into the greatest news ever. Of, okay, you realize that, that you can't do life on your own? That you are lost? And that you're going to perish? Only then, the words of Jesus apply to you when he says, I didn't come for those who are well. I came for those who are in need of a physician. You are invited to know the one who can give you hope, life, rest, and joy. He calls you to repent of your self-sufficiency, of your disobedience, and to trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins so that you can enter the rest that only he can give you. So that he can feed you the food that your soul needs that can only be found in Him and drink from the fountain that is going to fulfill you that many times if we're honest, we're out there looking for that, not realizing that we're never going to get it because only the God of the Bible, only Jesus is able to give us that rest and that satisfaction. May we be self-aware today to turn to Christ. Again and again.
Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning in the words of Agor. And Lord, many of us are exhausted, tired, weary. We've got nothing. We turn to you today and cry out, have mercy. We need your grace. We need your forgiveness. And Lord, we need accountability of our brothers and sisters to encourage each other, to walk with each other, to love each other, to correct each other, to rebuke each other, to rejoice with each other, to mourn with each other. May that be our attitude today, Lord, and as we continue to live as a family of God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.